Good morning, Valley Bible Church. We are going to be talking about love this morning. We are in our study of First Corinthians, and we get now to the love chapter, as it is often called. And it is uh, indeed uh, an important portion, not just in the book of First Corinthians, but in all of the scriptures. And I know that you just sat down, <clears throat> but I'm going to ask you to stand again while we read from your Bibles and mine, from his word, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. And so please, would you give attention to the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. God's people said, Amen. Father, we're grateful for your word. It speaks immeasurable truths to us us about your immeasurable word. Would you guide us? Would you train us? Would you make us lovers of Christ and lovers of one another because of your love for us? These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is indeed often called the love chapter. And um, about a year and a half ago, I officiated at my son's wedding and at the reception, my niece and her husband were talking to me about the ceremony. And specifically, they said that throughout the ceremony, they were just waiting for me to read 1 Corinthians 13. Because as they have said, said, they told me they had been to a bunch of weddings recently. And at every one of those weddings, 1 Corinthians 13 was read. 1 Corinthians 13 is a great chapter for weddings. And it just so happens that 
in that wedding. I didn't read it. I usually do. But, but what a better chapter to read to, to define what covenantal love is supposed to be like in a marriage and how a husband and wife are to treat one another. And so th- this kind of love is essential to a godly and successful marriage. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, did not pen 1 Corinthians 13 just to be read at weddings. It has a larger function. If you have been paying attention to our study of 1 Corinthians, as we have been going through chapter 12 about spiritual gifts, and then now, this morning, we just read the love chapter, you might even be asking yourself, well, how does this fit with spiritual gifts? Because Paul is then going to pick up in chapter 14, talking about spiritual gifts once again. This is an important chapter, not only in the book of 1 Corinthians, but in all of the Bible. In fact, it is unparalleled, I think, in terms of a definition of love. And it is so important because our world in general and our culture in particular have skewed and misunderstood the idea of love. Our world does not understand love at all. They have confused love with eroticism. And if aliens came down right now and they watched television and movies and videos and Twitter and Facebook and listened to music and watched halftime presentations and all of those things, they would conclude that love equals sex. But it does not. And that is not the point that Paul is making. Obviously, the the Bible is the place to go to find out what love is, because God is love. That is part of his essential being, that he is love. Just as he is holy, God is love. And we are to love as he has loved us. And every culture around the world that has an idea of love Every idea of love comes from God himself because he made all people in his image. And so the very idea of love comes from him. It may be skewed by sin. It may be under, understood and, 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 and misused because of the world. But all love is derived from God himself. So I want to take a, a few minutes to do a little bit of a background study here. Um, on the chapter, one writer has called this a psalm of love, a psalm of love. First Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13:1 1 through 13, one writer calls this a psalm of love. And we have to be careful, as I was even reading this, uh, several uh, commentators say, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 can just stand alone. Just, you can just read it, and, and it makes sense, and you know what it means. And we have to be careful of overanalyzing that. And so I'm mindful of that as we go through. But I want you to understand contextually um, and this, uh, this psalm of love. First of all, it has a unique character of itself, a unique character. It is poetic, like a psalm. Paul's vocabulary all of a sudden changes because he is a unique character. He uses literary devices. He uses figures of speech. He has a different rhythm and a different structure. And so there's this unique character, almost the character of a psalm itself. It's different from his other writings. 
In fact, many people have said that um, 1 Corinthians 13 was maybe written by somebody else, and Paul just inserted it here. Or they think maybe it doesn't even go between chapters uh, 12 and 14. Maybe it goes somewhere else. I don't think that's right. I think Paul has it exactly where he wants it to be. So it has a unique character, first of all. Second of all, it has a unique context, a unique context, because he's talking about spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts. And he's talking about um, how we are to ministry th- these gifts. In the last few weeks, in chapter 12, we've been going through them, turning and burning on spiritual gifts. But 1 Corinthians 13 is the moral gravitational center of the book. Because what has the book been about? The title of our series is Truth for a Troubled Church. And this is the answer to that troubled church. The context of the entire, not just the, 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 the study of, of spiritual gifts, but the, the very book itself. He starts off with all the factions in the church and the, the worldliness. They were not spiritual people. They're, they're suing one another. There's immorality amongst them. They're misusing marriage. They're not loving one another when it comes to, they're causing others to stumble when it comes to eat, eating meat, sacrificed to idols, taking one another to court. They're uh, coming to the Lord's table and there are factions there and they're looking down on one another. There's gender distinctions where there, there, there is no love. And so 1 Corinthians 13 speaks to everything that has come so far and what comes after. And in many ways, it is the apex of the book, but indeed it is the moral gravitational center of the book as it talks about love. So a unique character, unique context, but it has a unique message. The message of real love is unique in this world Because we have misconstrued love. And so real love is a unique message in the whole of Scripture. God is love. And he loves us with an everlasting love. The Old Testament word for love is the word chesed, which means steadfast love, loyal love, loving kindness. And it's used some some 250 times in the Old Testament, and it is always God's love of us. He will never and cannot never not love you because he's love and because he has a covenant with you. But he's given us the great commandment. You know, the great commandment was first given in Deuteronomy, and then the second part of it was given, in, given in, in Leviticus. But the great commandment is this from Matthew 22. When someone asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Later, this is called the royal law. If you love God with everything that you have, and you love your neighbor compassionately as yourself, you don't have to worry about any laws or rules or regulations. You will automatically keep the law because you're doing that which is right in God's eyes. By the way, notice... Jesus says, on these two commandments, 
Not three. What are the two commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. Loving yourself is not the third commandment. We'll talk more about that at another time, but this, that's, this is a, 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 a modern invention. We are to love our neighbors in the way that we love ourselves because we do love ourselves. So we're not commanded to self-love and self-esteem and all of those things that are, that are modern conventions. And we'll see that as we go along as well. But we are to love God and we are to love others and love is directional. It comes from God down to us and we are to love upwards to him. But it is also horizontal. We are to love one another and we are to love our neighbor. We are to love our community. It goes outward as well. And so what we see is this. Our love of others is a barometer of our love for God. Our love of others is a barometer of our love for God and vice versa. It goes the other way as well. If we say we love Jesus, we will love others. If we say that we are loving God with all of our heart and mind and soul, we will love our neighbor. We will love our brother and our sister in Christ. And that's how we can tell that we love God is that we love one another, and that's what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, just briefly, I want to look at the structure of 1 Corinthians 13. Again, being careful of overanalyzing, but I think the structure is very simple. The structure is this, the necessity of love, verses 1 through 3. Love is essential for the use of gifts. If there is no love, as we're going to see, everything else is useless. So the necessity of love. Second of all, the, the nature of love in verses 4 through 7. Love's character, love's essence, its qualities, its features. Paul is not going to give a lexical definition of love in this chapter. He's going to describe what it is, and he's going to describe what it isn't. You know it when you see it. And third, we will see the permanence of love in verses 8 through 13. Love lasts forever. But this morning, we're going to look at the first three verses where we're going to be looking at the necessity of love. Verses 1 through 3, the necessity of love. Love is essential. It is the sine qua non of the Christian faith, without which not. If there is no love, there is no Christian faith. The necessity of love and the, the idea that we're looking at here and, uh, and all you need to walk out with this morning is this. Any gift without love is useless. Any service of God without love is nothing. Anything we do for Christ without love doesn't count. It's good for nothing. And that's what we want to leave with this morning. And there are positives as well. So, We see this, first of all, in verse 1. Verse 1, words without love are meaningless. Words without love are meaningless. He says in verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I speak, Paul is going to, in these three verses, he's he's going to declare excuse me, five conditions, hypotheticals. A hypothetical statement is, if you were to come to my store 
without shoes, I will deny you service. If you were to do that, just per, per chance to say that, I don't have a store. But that's what a con- conditional statement is, and that mirrors what's going on here. He has a hypothetical. He speaks five hop- hypotheticals. You see, the first one here is, if I were to speak with the tongues of men and of angels. But he will add uh, a hyperbole to each one of these statements. And a hyperbole is an exaggeration. And so it, he's going to say, for instance, in, the, in, the, in verses 2 and verse 3, if I, if I were able to know all things, if I were able to know all mysteries, of course you can't. If I were able to have all faith, if I happened to give all my stuff away, which he hasn't, if I were able to, if I gave my, my body to be burned in martyrdom, which he hasn't done, these are all hypotheticals, and they are all hyperbole. He's, he's exaggerating to make a point. But there's a negative condition in each one of the, the hypothetical statements. If I were to speak with the tongues of men and angels, and the negative condition is, but do not have love says that three times. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. If I don't have love. If I were to do all this wonderful stuff, but I don't have love. And the conclusion is, zip. Zippo. Nothing. Nada. Worthless. That's the conclusion. Any gift without love is useless. That's the conclusion. Any gift, any service, any religion... Anything we do without love is useless. And the purpose of the hyperbole is to demonstrate that if you were able to do anything for the Lord to its fullest extent, to its fullest measure, but love is absent, then your greatest efforts are worthless. That's the purpose of the hyperbole. Now, tongues were last on the list that we saw last week. We've seen two lists in chapter 12 so far of spiritual gifts. Tongues listed last. But now he lists it first because he's going to say that if there is no love in this tongue speaking, then they're good for nothing. Paul does speak in tongues, he tells us. But notice he says, if I were to speak with the tongues of men. What are the tongues of men? They're languages, right? French, German, Swahili. So we know the tongues are a language. And what are the tongues of angels? Well, in my Bible, whenever I read angels coming to earth and they're talking to people, you know what language they're speaking? English. They always speak English, right? We don't know if there is some other language, but many people say, well, that's what speaking in tongues is today as some heavenly language. Paul is making is speaking in hyperbole. He cannot argue, we cannot argue rather, that he spoke the languages of angels because in verses 2 and 3, which are parallel, all are given these hypotheticals that are actually not true. He doesn't have all faith. He doesn't have all knowledge. He hasn't given everything away. He hasn't given himself to martyrdom. He has not spoken in a language of angels. By the way, some people say that, actually the, the, the um, rabbis believe that the language of heaven that everyone will speak is Hebrew. 
I hope that's not true because Hebrew is a very guttural language and it's just not sonorous and doesn't uh, work well with the ears. So I, I hope it's not Hebrew. It'll be something else. But Paul doesn't know all mysteries. Paul doesn't have all knowledge. He doesn't have all faith. He hasn't given everything away and he hasn't spoken in all the languages of the world. That's what the idea here. If he were to speak in all languages, even of angels, if that's some possibility, minus love, it's noise. By the way, he says, I have become, so here's the conclusion, the the negative is, but do not have love. The the conclusion is, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. These are not musical instruments. We think of a gong and a cymbal as percussion instruments. That's not what these were. They were pieces of metal that were often used in cultic religions. But basically, a gong was anything made of copper or brass. And a symbol was some empty metal basin, and you would take two of them and just smash them together. And the word for um, noisy is the word from which we get the ec- word echo, so that it just becomes an echo chamber. And the word for um, uh, clanging symbol is uh, what we call an onomatopoeia. Remember that from high school and college, a word that sounds like what it sounds like? Clang is an onomatopoeia. Clang, clang, clang. But this is the word alalazon. Alalazon. Alalalalalala. It was used of a lament. It was used of a battle cry. And people would just go, alalalalala. Which, what, which means, which translated means, alalalalala. Doesn't mean anything. It's like one of those monkeys, wind up monkeys. It's just annoying back and clang, clang, clang. Or Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. Zero. Doesn't mean a thing. Talk is cheap. Flowery words and tongues and eloquence are impressive. But when uncoupled from love, it's just noise. It's noise. Doesn't do a thing. So here's the thing. Spiritual gifts have meaning. Spiritual gifts have meaning. They have purpose. And spiritual gifts have this meaning, this purpose of edification. Edification, building up the body. That is the purpose of spiritual gifts. They have meaning. Words without love, noise. First Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 8.1, Paul said, Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. It builds up. 10.23, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify, build up. 12.7, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We saw that a few weeks ago. For the profit of all, every gift that you, you exercise is for the profit of each and every one in the body to build it up. And six times in chapter 14, Paul refers to spiritual gifts edifying the body in 14, 3, 4, 5, 12, 17, and 26. Spiritual gifts have meaning. Words without love have no meaning. And so, spiritual gifts are serving one another. 
spiritual gifts are this. We, we are to serve. We are to serve Christ. We are to serve one another. We serve Christ by serving one another. And we serve Christ by serving one another in love. Let's put that up on the screen. We are to serve. We are to serve Christ. We are to serve one another. We serve Christ by serving one another. We serve Christ by serving one another in love. What if you leave love out? Those first four statements mean nothing. They achieve nothing. They're pointless. Because you can do all that without love. You can do it in his name, so to speak. But if love is not there, it's worthless. You know, attitude and motive are so important And it is so easy in a church, I know this myself, as in any organization, maybe a club you belong to or at work, it is so easy that we get to a place where we just go through the motions and we lose the meaning, we lose the purpose, we lose the drive, we lose the love that is necessary to everything we do, I understand it myself. It's easy for me, even as a pastor, to go through the weekly rhythm of the week, and you've got to do this, got to do that, and you've got to study, you've got to do all this stuff. You can do it all without love. Any of us can. So words without love are meaningless. And then in verse 2, knowledge and faith without love are nothing. Knowledge and faith without Love are nothing. Knowledge is important. Faith is important. He's going to talk about prophecy. But they are nothing and they actually make us nothing is what he says. Verse 2. Verse 2 he says, if I have the gift of prophecy, here's the hypothetical. And here's the hyperbole. And this prophecy. And I know all mysteries and all knowledge. Can anybody know all mysteries and all knowledge? No, it's a hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. If Paul knew all mysteries and all knowledge, what does that make him? Omniscient. It makes him God, and he's not. But he says, if I were in my prophetic gift to know all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith, can anyone have all faith? Even such a faith that is described this way, so as to remove mountains, mountain-moving faith. And here's the negative condition. But do not have love. I am nothing. I am zero. Him personally, as an apostle. This prophecy which included Knowledge of all mysteries. A mystery, you know, as we've said many times, is something that is hidden but is now being revealed. And that's part of prophecy is to tell what something that God has has hidden and to give that new revelation to people. And if Paul says, if I knew all the things that were hidden and if I had all knowledge, but he couldn't. It's impossible. Remember 1 Corinthians 8.1 says this, knowledge makes arrogant. But love edifies. Boom, boom. Knowledge makes arrogant. How does that work? 
Some people think that they have all faith and all knowledge, and this breeds pride. There is great temptation to pride, even in Bible knowledge, isn't there? I know things that you don't know. I know more than what you know. And there's a, there's a, 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 there's a pride that can come along even amongst Christians in terms of how much theology and Bible we know. And, and when we, what happens is we all know people like they, that they put their knowledge on display, all the useless facts and all the things that they know, and they become a what? A know-it-all. And oftentimes, these kinds of Christians even are very contentious. Because they like to debate and they like to find you wrong. They like to prove that you are wrong. They like to prove that they know more than what you know. Because knowledge puffs up. It just, it's like money. Money has a special allure. Knowledge has a special temptation in it as well. And we have to be careful about it because that kind of knowledge and pride does not edify. It only inflates the other person. It does not build up the body of Christ. Of course, sharing knowledge with love is transforming, isn't it? All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in in righteousness. And when we share the knowledge of the scripture and when we give its meaning and when we encourage you to live it, then discipleship takes place and edification takes place. But it must be done in love, not just out of rote or a display of some superior knowledge to others. He also says, if I have all faith, that's an impossibility. Just as it's impossible to have all knowledge, so is it impossible to have all faith. Every Christian has some faith, right? No Christian has all faith. And the faith that he's talking about is the the kind of faith that moves mountains, the the moving mountains, uh, Jesus spoke of that. And he didn't mean this literally, but it, it is, uh, it's a kind of faith that we would call mountain-moving faith, but it, it accomplishes things. The, the impossible seem to be, be getting done. In fact, uh, it may refer to miracles at this point. A faith to move mountains. But everybody has some faith. And so for us, Just as faith without works is dead, James said, faith without works is dead. So is faith without love. If we have faith, but we have not love, Paul says, I am nothing. I am nothing. I'm a nobody. Faith without works is dead, so is faith without love. Even if you have more faith than others, even if you have mountain moving faith, but you lack love, if we lack love, we are nothing. Faith always trusts God to do great things. And we love what he will accomplish through the kingdom of God when we love with faith. But, but you see the, what I've often called the divine math that is here. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, Plus, I have all mysteries. Plus, I know all things. Plus, I have all faith minus love. 
equals what? Zero. Equals nothing. Whatever knowledge we have, whatever faith we have, if there's no love, nothing. But you don't have to have all knowledge, and you don't have to have all faith. None of you do. Some of you have more knowledge than others. Some of you just have uh, uh, new knowledge, new believer, you've not been taught much. Some, some of you may have a, a little bit of faith, but it's, but it's a weak faith. Jesus talked about faith like a mustard seed. It's where you place that faith. So let's turn the, the equation around. What if you have a little bit of knowledge plus a little bit of faith plus love? What does that equal? Who knows what God can do with that? Because God will multiply it. It will result in edification. It will result in building up the body of Christ. God multiplies our little efforts when we couple them with love. When commentator Barrett said this, Love is the indispensable addition which alone gives worth to all other gifts. So we're not talking about gifts or love. We're talking about gifts plus love. They go together. Whatever knowledge you have, whatever faith you have, use it in love, even if it's a little. And that's the opposite of what Paul is saying here, but it's a good lesson for us. So words without love are meaningless. Faith and knowledge without love are nothing. And in verse 3, sacrifice without love is fruitless. Sacrifice without love gets nothing, accomplishes nothing. It is fruitless. It's just nothing. He says in verse 3, And if I give all my possessions, here's the hypothetical, here is the hyperbole, the exaggeration. If I give all my possessions, he hasn't done that, to feed the poor, And if I surrender my body to be burned, it's the ultimate sacrifice, is it not? To give yourself up. Some of your versions say, if I give myself up for boasting, that's because there's a textual problem here, and that word for uh, burn and boasting, just a couple of letters are different, and so some read it differently. The idea is the same, that if you sacrifice yourself for the cause of Christ without love, There's no profit in it. You don't get anything for it. The hypothetical of sacrificing all your possessions, the hypothetical of of giving away everything you have to the poor, reminds us of Matthew 19. Someone came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall, commit, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's not one of the Ten Commandments, is it? But he throws it in there because it's part of the great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. Yeah, right. What am I still lacking? 
Jesus said to him, if he was to be complete, testing his faith, does he really believe this stuff? Go sell your possessions, give it to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven, come and follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving because he was one who owned much property. You know, there are times when people do give away all things. When, when Jesus talked about that, he didn't mean this literally that every Christian gives away everything and gives to the poor. In principle, we do. In principle, we give everything to God. In principle, we own nothing before him. We are stewards of all our possessions, and we use them to help the poor. Yes, we should. But that's not the literal call of Jesus. <clears throat> and in Luke's account of this, we know some further ideas. Peter said to Jesus, Behold, we have left our own homes, followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So there is profit in sacrificing for Jesus. In fact, we we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul said every man's works will be tested and some will suffer loss. There is reward, but we don't do it for the reward. We do it for love, for love's reward. Because if we were to do these without love, there is no profit for our sacrifice. Motives can be tricky business, can't they? This is really hard stuff. It is. Because we have to do things. We have to serve. We have to, to, we have to, we should give. We should help. We should sacrifice. But Jesus said in Matthew 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And when you give, he said, Don't blare the trumpet and don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing or left or right, whatever the the order is. Can that happen with us? Give with resentment for something or to someone? Well, I guess I should. Everybody else is. Out of mere duty, can we give because we expect to earn favor with God? Well, if I give, God's going to notice. You know what that is? That's legalism. Then he's going to give me back. Or to look good in the eyes of men. I hope people see me writing this check. I just happened to mention that I gave $20,000 to the building fund, but don't mind me. (laughs) Love is always about the benefit of others, is it not? And it's necessary to do good and to do good works that benefit others. But we have to be careful that we are not self-serving, but instead are benefiting others. And again, If I gave everything away, Paul says, no, you don't have to give everything away. But what if you have a little bit? What if you don't have as much as most people in the church? Could you violate this? Sure. I'm just going to give a small amount. But do it for personal glory. So people know, well, you know, I'm going to fix an income. And the $20 that I gave for this was, that was a real sacrifice for me. There's no reward. 
So whether you give the $20,000 or the $20 and you want credit for it before man, there's no profit. That's what Jesus says. Hypothetic of giving oneself to martyrdom. How would that, you know, what's that all about? I think uh, the other versions that say giving yourself for glory is the idea. You know, there's the romantic of I- idea of dying on a battlefield for a, a great cause, right? Well, what's that all about? So you get your name on a plaque. So you're, you're, you're in the history books because you stood your ground. The romantic idea may be of self-glory, self-edification. And the opposite of love is self-centeredness. In all this, it would be loving self above others. Self-gain, self-edification in tongues, self-promotion in knowledge, self-gain in sacrifice of possessions, becoming a martyr. You know, there's a difference between being a martyr and playing the martyr, right? Some people are good at that. By the way, I had a, had a cold this week, and I, I, just, you know, I struggled for you guys. I really did work hard just so I could be up here today. <coughs> no reward, right? You get the idea. So... However you have been gifted, to whatever degree, serve others in love. However you have been gifted, to whatever degree, serve others in love. You've all been gifted. Varying degrees. Apply love and just serve him. Leave the results with God. The conclusion of the matter is this, and we're going to have a longer, a little bit longer conclusion, but the conclusion is where we began. Any gift without love is useless. Very simple. Any gift, any use of that gift is useless without love. <clears throat> but you know what? You do well. I just want to say what a privilege it is to be the pastor of this church. Um, from the very beginning, I have prayed a prayer very consistently for Valley Bible Church from Philippians chapter 1, where Paul says, In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment. I pray, I pray that prayer consistently over the years, that Valley Bible Church would grow in love, in knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and discernment with love are unimaginable. We want to be a church of grace. We don't want to be a church of legalism. We want to be a church of love and not a place of judgmentalism. And I continue to pray that, and God answers our prayers for this. Uh, I, I am amazed recently, one of the things that God has taught me is my own limitations. When I see some of the things that our life groups are doing, I know one life group that uh, Tara and I visited recently, there is a woman in that group <clears throat> who um, some time ago, her husband was in a long illness, subsequently died, and the, that life group, they were with her, they helped her, they sat with her, they helped her through that whole thing. Another woman in that life group um, recently went through a very extreme painful illness. I remember going to the ER to visit her, and one of the life group members was there. 
in the hospital then, when she was in a room for surgery, life group was there. And they brought meals and they sat with her and they prayed with her and they held her hand. I could not do that much as one man. There's another life group right now. There's a man in that group who has been struggling with cancer and probably does not have long to live. And that life group, those people are sitting with him and doing chores for them and giving them meals. They know these people. I can go visit with them as a pastoral visit, but I don't know them as well as their life group does. And that's what you all are doing. It, it just It's amazing to me the love that exists in this church. Blanket makers are another example. These ladies get through get together all the time. It is a labor of love to make those blankets that they give to people that are ill, people that are hurting. They, they, they go out through our community, throughout all of Spokane, to different organizations, and, and the love of the people of Valley Bible Church is spread through those blankets. Our GO partners, whenever they have needs, you step up. Whenever we say that there's a need in the church and someone needs some finances or for some, some help, sometimes before the second service, it is done. It just amazes me sometimes. People come up, we got the money. Because you're loving and you're giving. And it is a privilege to be associated with people that love each other. By the way, thank you for sending the gift cards my way from my email that came out to you. <clears throat> Disregard, whenever you get those emails, okay? If you, if you want, I'm saying I want to talk to you confidentially, just delete it. I want to be a friendly church. I think we should be a friendly church, but be up, above that we should be a loving church. You should be friendly with people who come through the front doors. And that's easy. But we should be showing love to one another so that when people come in the, the front door, and I think they can sense it, that love is in this place, that these people love each other, and I want to be a part of that. And what is the motivation for love? It is God's grace. The motivation for love is God's grace because we can't love till we first experience his love. We love because he first loved us. And our love has to be genuine because we have to believe in Christ. So as you partake, as you get ready, the Lord's table, look at this verse in John 15. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I encourage you to the love of Christ, the love feasts. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The Lord's table is about his love for us. And the only reason that we can love one another is because he first loved us. But it has to be genuine. It has to be real coming from him. Father, we thank you 
for sending your son to die for us. There is no greater love than giving up one's life. You may call us to sacrifice ourselves, the greatest sacrifice of martyrdom, but probably not. In the meantime, may we love you and love one another as we have been loved. Demonstrated in the body of Christ, beaten, pierced, nailed to a cross, and the blood of Christ shed for our sins. In his name, amen. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me.